Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we are very excited today to have a return guest. And the last time this guest was on the show, we talked about how quickly he works and how, how many uh, books he's written in a very short amount of time. And he is here to talk about another new book. And he's here live from Philadelphia, Paul Cahan. Welcome back. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So the new book is called Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. Yeah. So it's a, a little different. comes a later time from your previous book that we talked about, The Bank War. Mm-hmm. And this one, you know, it doesn't focus on the Civil War, but, you know, you have Lincoln and he's the Secretary of War for Lincoln. So there's a lot of Civil War content. And one of the things that I always joke about when I talk to graduate students or even other or, or even faculty members is when people talk about historiography and they say, what should I write about? What is there? to say that hasn't already been said, or is there a topic that hasn't been explored yet? And one of the jokes I make is that you don't necessarily need something that has never been written about, because look at the Civil War. A new book comes out about the Civil War every five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And so now here we are with a book that isn't exclusively about the Civil War, but talks a lot about the Civil War. So before we get in specifically to Simon Cameron, for you as a historian looking into this period, how do you situate yourself within the extremely voluminous literature on the American Civil War? You know, it's funny that you should ask that. I remember in uh, Ken Burns' documentary, he interviews a guy by the name of Shelby Foote, who's this uh, you know novelist who ends up writing a really significant three-volume study of the war. And he says, you know, I looked at all these sources, I read all these books, I could have looked at a totally different batch of sources, a totally different batch of books, and written three other books on the Civil War. And I think that in some sense, it gives you a sense of just how voluminous and in some cases overwhelming that literature is. Uh, I don't think that it's possible for any one human being to you know, master the entire thing. And so what I set out to do with Cameron was try to master those elements that were relevant. Now, Cameron was only Secretary of War during the first 10 months uh, of the shooting war. But even that amount of material in terms of primary sources and secondary sources was really kind of astonishing. And I think that it's about diligence. It's about trying to find the best and just recognizing that at a certain level, there's going to be more that you're just not going to be able to read in a certain, you know, in a, in a given amount mm-hmm. of time. Right. And for you, then, what is it exactly that you would be looking at? I mean, I know that the American Civil War has this incredible legacy in this country that everyone cares a lot about it. It's it's almost this this weirdly sainted event, you know, the unification of the Union and, and all that kind of stuff. But you know, let's be talk about the practical side that it happened in the middle of the 19th century. So what type of primary sources remain? Was there at the time a strong effort to keep a lot of the textual documents and how much of that stuff is still accessible to you? Or are you relying on secondary stuff and 
or reproductions of things? Like, like for you, what is the access to the material? Well, I, that's an excellent question. And actually, there is an astonishing amount of material that's been preserved. Cameron's papers are largely in two collections, one at the uh, Dauphin County Historical Society, which is situated in his, one of his mansions, uh, the one in Harrisburg, and then a very large uh, Library of Congress collection. Lincoln's papers are voluminous as well. In fact, there is a website that has collected and transcribed, uh, has collected and digitized almost all of his papers and uh, is in the process of transcribing them. The various presidents um, in the lead up to the war, Polk, Jackson, um, their papers have been published. Some of the leading statesmen, John C. Calhoun, Henry Clay, in the decades leading up to the war. And, of course, the president's papers themselves, uh, even if they haven't been published, are generally available in microfilm. But the, the government itself, shortly after the war, published in dozens of volumes uh, collections of its own documents related to the war. And then when it uh, captured the Confederacy, it ended up uh, printing the Confederate archives. And then, of course, you have the personal papers of all of the participants. You have diaries. I mean, it's an astonishing, astonishing uh, paper record. You know, I'm going to say this without really being able to prove it, but for my money, the Civil War is one of the best documented events in human history. And there's really an embarrassment of riches um, as I said earlier, it's impossible to master every single piece of paper. You know, when I wrote my book on, e- on Eastern State Penitentiary, I was confident that I had put my hands on every piece of paper that is still exists related to that prison. There is no way that I could, I could brag that, um, I could make that claim with regard to the Civil War. So for you then, because you're writing about the Secretary of War, is it, uh, an effort then to limit the material to either what he would have read and wrote? Well, like, is that sort of a, a methodological way that, to limit yourself? Well, I think that one of the things is that biography by its nature imposes some limitations. Sure. Yeah. Um, the focus is always going to be on Cameron. Um, that being said, there are a lot of things that are being said about him. There are a lot of things that are being said behind his back that, you wouldn't want to exclude, like, for instance, Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells kept a a diary, as did some of the other members of the cabinet. Those were not, you know, those writings were not things that Cameron would have been privy to, but they would have been absolutely essential, and they were absolutely essential in reconstructing his time as a member of the cabinet. You know, Salmon Chase's letters, uh, much of which have been published, many of which have been published, were an incredibly important resource in sort of understanding, you know, where, what Cameron's perspective was, how that gelled with the president's. Ironically enough, for his term as Secretary of War, Cameron's papers were probably the, actually the least useful source. Hmm. Cameron once said that he would rather walk five miles to say, to tell someone something so he could later deny it. put it in in writing and then potentially be bound by it so this was a guy who was very careful about what he left behind and it's actually through other people's writings that i get i think the the best glimpses of who he was as a person Hmm. so the book the title of the book notes lincoln's secretary of war but you as you mentioned it's a sort of a biography Mm -hmm. of simon simon cameron who is an interesting figure just on his own. 
so for you, like, who is Simon Cameron? Because, you know, he has different party affiliations. He does a lot of different things. Like, how do you situate him as a figure? Is he a national figure? You, you know, you talk a lot about in the book about his love and affiliation with the state of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as you're approaching him to write this book, what is your goal? Is, is it to provide a biography of his public life or really to focus on that period when he's in Lincoln's cabinet? Cameron interests me because, you know, he's born in 1799. He dies in 1889. So he his life. That's pretty good. Like, yeah. Straddles a very broad yeah. period in American history. I mean, it, it is the 19th century in a lot of ways. He's born in the last year of George Washington's life and dies, you know, as as we're, you know, the, the Gilded Age is winding down. So it's it, it really straddles, you know, my periods of my periods, periodization of scholarly interest. And I definitely think Cameron is a national figure, but I think Cameron's life and his experiences remind us that telling the story of American history at the national level misses a crucial part of what made these what gave these guys political power and that was the very effective control of state level political machines you know what makes Martin Van Buren so important is control of New York's coalescing democratic party and uh, what 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 makes James Buchanan a national figure and basically allows him to win the presidency in 1856 is the fact that he was a very significant figure in Pennsylvania, which was a crucial state for winning the presidency. So by virtue of the fact that Cameron ends up, you know, essentially winning the, the war for control of Pennsylvania's political machine, he is by dint of doing that a national figure. But he always sees himself as wielding national authority in service of Pennsylvania's interest. And he does that as senator, um, you know, in three different periods. The only time that he takes, I would argue, a truly national view is during his 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 biggest failure, which is uh, his tenure as Secretary of War. Hmm. So in, in looking at him in that way and, and sort of mastering the political machine of Pennsylvania, when he goes to Washington as a senator... What is he pushing for? Like, what is his platform? Because to get elected and to take control of that political machine in Pennsylvania, obviously, you would have to appeal to local interests. But once you're in Washington, you're there with these competing interests of all the other senators, not to mention people in the House. Does he change his operations in a way that he can operate in this national legislature while preserving his desire to do things for Pennsylvania? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, Cameron serves three different ter uh, terms in the Senate. He's in the Senate from 1845 to 1849. He returns uh, 1857 to 1861. He then becomes Secretary of War. And then he's returned to the Senate from 1867 to 1877 when he retires. And I think it's crucial to remind people that in the 19th century, senators were not directly elected. Senators mm -hmm. chosen by the state legislatures, and they were tasked explicitly and implicitly with representing the state's interests. Right. They were not there to represent the interests of John Q. Public 
Pennsylvanian, they were there to represent the interests of Pennsylvania. And so Cameron throughout his life is an ardent champion of high tariffs, which your listeners are probably, you know, sitting there yawning, like who cares about <laughs> tariffs? But tariffs were the one of the most divisive political issues of the 19th century. Uh, you know, it was a fight over tariffs that ultimately almost brought South Carolina to secede from the Union in the 1830s. And so when, when Cameron's elect, you know, Pennsylvania is a very high tariff state. Pennsylvania likes a high tariff because a high tariff increases the prices of imports and provides protection for uh, local industries. And Pennsylvania is one of, if not the most industrialized states in the 1830s and 1840s. And so when Cameron ends up in the Senate, he is an unabashed supporter of the tariff to the point that it brings him into conflict with a president of his own party. Cameron in the 1840s is a Democrat. He is in the Senate uh, during the presidency of James K. Uh, K. Polk, who was also a Democrat. Polk and Cameron start out on good terms. In fact, Cameron is one of Polk's lieutenants in Pennsylvania during the 1844 presidential election. But once Cameron becomes the senator from Pennsylvania, he aggressively pursues what he considers to be Pennsylvania's interests. And that means high tariffs. Mm. Polk had been elected sort of promising in certain circumstances to lower the tariff. This brings him into conflict with, with Cameron. And Cameron gives up it just doesn't even think about it. Party loyalty be damned. He's going to be loyal to the interests of his state. Hmm. Uh, I think in part because there's some principle at stake. Uh, you know, he, he actually believes that the tariff is good for Pennsylvania and there's some political, you know, aspirations at stake. He can't, he recognizes that if he runs afoul of Pennsylvania's interests, he's not going to be reelected to the Senate. So, you know, I, I, I think that what we need to remember and what Cameron's story really drives home is people who wanted to build a national reputation or have a place in national politics did so typically uh, through their states and that state politics were an incredibly important part in in, you know, that stepping stone into the Capitol or the White House. Right. And, th and that's an interesting point, too. They mentioned that it, it was this devotion to the state above the party affiliation, because you make a, a point, like really early on in the book, I believe in the introduction, to note that he was a member of three different parties mm -hmm. while serving at, at different different offices. So one of the things, though, that I would ask a question is, if, if he is so devoted to the state above party affiliation, typically when you think of local political machines, they have a political bent to them, that they're affiliated with one party or the other. So given that he is fluid in his association with the national parties, who is controlling the political machine in Pennsylvania, and how does he become so influential within that machine? Like, what is his background that he is able to assume such, arise to such a prominent position within the state? Well, that's a really that's actually two really good questions. One of the things that I want to make clear for your listeners, and it's a point that I make in the book, is that Pennsylvania is in many ways a microcosm of American politics from the 18 really from about the 1820s to the Civil War in every election. Pennsylvania votes for the person who ends up winning 
the Electoral College and with it the presidency. Most of the time, those are Democrats, but in two elections, 1840 and 1848, they're Whigs. So, you know, Pennsylvania is not solidly Democratic. You know, it's very much a sort of bellwether of what's going on in the country. And, you know, as a result, I think that, you know, Cameron is a Democrat, but he's a Pennsylvania Democrat. And that means that, you know, he's sort of, as you mentioned, the bank war, he's sort of skittish about Jackson's bank war. He's sort of skittish about the Democrats anti-tariff sort of things. And increasingly, as we get into the 1850s, he is becoming more and more aggressive about protecting Pennsylvania's rights, its state rights, not to be a slave state. And I'm sure that's something that we're going to talk about yeah. uh, further down the line. The other issue that you raise is, you know, what's Cam Cameron's background? And one of the things that I, I really emphasize in the book is Cameron, uh, you know, is poor, but he has a very fortuitous early career as a newspaper man. That he, you know, gets an apprenticeship at the local newspaper and becomes a printer. And this really forms the basis of his political career, that he happens to become a printer at a moment where the press is really, really taking off. And the public sphere is playing an increasing role in American politics. And politicians are beginning to recognize, hey, it's useful to mobilize the press uh, in support of my political goals. And so politicians begin funding what they call organs, essentially, um, you know, personal newspapers that are devoted to them and their political issues. And early on, as a man in his early 20s, Cameron ends up uh, getting involved in that and demonstrating through his loyalty and through, you know, his his business savvy that he's a really effective political operative in that sense. And that allows him to sort of work behind the scenes in Pennsylvania's politics. It gives him entree to the most successful Pennsylvania politicians and ultimately paves the way for him ultimately to become a, a politician in his own right. It's important to point out Cameron isn't elected to the Senate until he's 46 years old. Mm. I mean, he's relatively old when his political career starts, if we date it to him first holding elective office. He's 62 when he becomes Secretary of War, and during his last uh, tenure as, as senator, he's 77 years old. I'm sorry, 67 years old. So it's relatively late in life that he becomes a, a politician in the way that we think of it. But that early experience as a printer really lays the groundwork for all of that. So before he was involved in public life, obviously, as you mentioned, he, he's getting a reputation within political circles. Was he well known within the state by oh, by John Q. Public? Like, would they have a, would people have known who he was? And when they found out he was appointed senator, approved of that? Yes. So he, uh, you know, early on, he 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 is involved in politics through the newspapers, and as a result, you know, on on the state level, he gets patronage appointments. He's appointed um, adjutant general of the state militia, from which, for the rest of his life, he refers to himself as General Cameron. Um, <laughs> 
Oh, when he when he becomes when he becomes ambassador to Russia when he's sixty one, one of the reasons it takes him so long to get to Russia is because he has to order a new military frock coat to wear. <laughs> so he's you know he's this sixty two year old guy walking around in this general's frock coat based on you know the fact forty years before he was adjutant general of the state military. I mean he's a really interesting guy in that regard. Um, yeah, he would have had some political – people would have known who he was. I mean, this was the guy, by the time of his 40th birthday, he had been involved – he was wealthy. He was the public face of the Middletown Bank, which was a very well-respected institution. He had been involved in a number of state-building contracts. He had you know, been involved in a number of patronage appointments. But the biggest thing that would have – that people would have known him for would have been the Winnebago – uh, Indian scandal, um, from which he ha- he earned the enduring epithet "Win a great Winnebago chief." After he was he was uh, Martin Van Buren appointed him to adjudicate the claims of Winnebago Native Americans under the terms of a treaty that the U.S. signed with them, hmm. and there was some concern that uh, Cameron defrauded them, those Native Americans, of their due under the contract. Now, interestingly enough. It wasn't the Nate. It wasn't the Winnebagos who were making these claims. It was uh, an army officer, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I I kind of sift through the evidence in the book, and you know, this is one of those things where there really is a shortage of, of evidence. But ultimately, I think Cameron was somewhat unfairly tarred with that with that title, and of course, you know, it became you know his his enemies gleefully deployed it against him, right. and the fact that they did so. Uh, tells us something about how well known that incident was. Right, because no one's going to target you if, if if you're a nobody. Like if you're or if you're an irrelevant figure, nobody cares. Right, and even yeah. forty years later, you know, when people right. run against him for the Senate in the 1860s, they're still talking about the great <laughs> great Winnebago chief. So it gives you a sense that you know this event was was pretty well known in its day. Right. Yeah. For sure. For sure. So he once he gets to Washington, you mentioned a senator, and, and he has the the run-ins with the, the Democratic Party and, and changes his party affiliation. How does he get in with Lincoln, and how does he get appointed to Lincoln's cabinet? That's a great question. So one of the things that happens is Cameron remains a Democrat even after he leaves the Senate in 1849. Um, because one of the things that happens is with Zachary Taylor's election in 1848, the Democratic Party on the national level is really dealt a blow. And as a result, the state parties kind of have much more leeway than they might have otherwise had had the president been a Democrat. And so Cameron is able to remain in the Democratic fold. Um, what ultimately expels him from the party is the fact that his relationship with James Buchanan, who was the other great Democrat from Pennsylvania in the 1850s, begins souring. Mm-hmm. And those two go from being bosom buddies to being, you know, bitter rivals for control of Pennsylvania's politics. Um, and so as you know, as the second party system collapses, as the Whig party sort of disappears, as the Democratic Party begins fracturing into northern and southern wings in the late 1850s, it becomes not only advantageous, but politically expedient for Cameron to jump ship. 
And he jumped ship first to the Know Nothing Party, which is this party that had this brief sort of explosive influence in American history and then sort of died. Right. And also then, has the greatest name of a political party. Well, it's, it's, it's also between Isn't that it? anti-Masons. Right. The anti-Masons are pretty, uh, pretty out there. <laughs> um, but, you know, the know-nothings were all about – on the surface, the know-nothings were nothing but a bunch of anti-Catholic bigots who wanted to prevent – Catholic Europeans from emigrating to the United States. But more recent work has argued, yeah, they were about that, but they were also really about rallying people who were opposed to slavery. And I think that Cameron's brief migration into the Know Nothing Party was more about his sort of unhappiness with Southern encroachments on Pennsylvania state rights and um, political expediency than it was any sympathy with their anti-Catholicism. But when that party crumbles uh, in eighteen in the late 1850s, you know, really the only choice left is the Republicans, which mm -hmm. is this party that emerges in the mid-1850s, has very close relationship to Pennsylvania, and provides an open, a very quick route to political control for guys like Cameron. I mean, it's a, it's a, a party that's new. It brings together a whole bunch of factions. You know, it's the kind of thing where it doesn't have an ossified hierarchy that, you know, you have to put your time in. And I think Cameron recognizes that he jumps on that bandwagon and basically within a few months goes from being, you know, Mr. New Guy to being the most important Republican in the state of Pennsylvania and, you know, being talked about as a national candidate in 1860. And then once he gets in with Lincoln, why is he the secretary of war? Like, is he really the best option? Well, that's a good question. So uh, Cameron ends up getting selected because when when we get to the Republican convention in Chicago in 1860, Lincoln's people come to Cameron's people. And I think this is pretty well documented. What I'm about to say is a little controversial, but uh, for my money, this is pretty well document, documented. And they, they basically make a deal. They say, look, you give us Pennsylvania's support to get Lincoln the nomination. We will give you a cabinet post. Mm. And Cameron's people say, OK, and that's what happens. Lincoln gets Pennsylvania support. And in exchange, Lincoln is expected to give Cameron a, a cabinet position. Now, the cabinet position that had been expected was secretary of the Treasury. But for a variety of political reasons that I talk about in, in Chapter 9 of the book, the secretary of the Treasury position is off the table. And what's really left for Cameron is the Secretary of Warship. Now, uh, historians have talked about how, oh, this proves that Lincoln didn't actually think there was going to be a war. He picked this incredibly incompetent guy. Obviously, he didn't care about the War Department. And I argue that's not the case at all. I argue that Lincoln does nominate Cameron to a cabinet position because he has a political debt to Cameron, but that it's not an accident that the War Department was the department that Cameron got. Mm -hmm. That, you know, Cameron believed that there was going to be a war. Uh, he advocated, you know, war preparation. Lincoln had sent him to Washington to sort of oversee um, defenses in the weeks before Lincoln was inaugurated. So Lincoln really trusted Cameron's military judgment, in part, I think, because Cameron had served not only as 
you know, adjutant general of the state militia of Pennsylvania, but also as a visitor, which was essentially a, a member of the board of trustees of, you know, um, uh, uh, the army, I'm sorry, West Point. Um, that being said, Cameron was wildly unsuited to uh, the Secretary of War position. Mm. Uh, his, his performance is not as bad as some historians have argued, but it wasn't great. So in that position, what were his major, uh, what, what was his major project? Like, how did he wow. envision the, the Union Army? The United States Army, uh, when the first shots are fired at Fort Sumter, is anemic. I think it's got like 16,000 people in it. Uh, most of those are in the West, sort of picking fights with Native Americans. Um, the War Department has like a dozen people working in it. Half of them resign. Uh, a large percentage of the army officers, the right of the officers of the regular army resigned to take commissions, Confederacy's army. So, you know, Cameron's major, the major task facing Cameron is building, equipping, training and deploying a force that is large enough to subdue the southern states and compel them back into the Union. You know, Lincoln issues a call for 75,000 troops. I mean, which is, you know, all, almost a five-fold expansion of the existing regular army. And then, you know, on top of that, there's no existing apparatus for bringing those people into federal service, equipping them, training them, um, the, the productive capacity of America's you know, uniform manufacturers, gun manufacturers, boat man, it just, it just isn't there. And so Cameron is trying to basically from the moment he walks into office, build an army, arm that army, deploy that army and develop a strategy for winning the war. Meanwhile, you've got all of these political considerations to worry about. Most notably, what are we going to do about slavery? And the slavery issue, you know, comes up almost immediately because as the army moves south, as the army engages the Confederacy, you know, as it enters southern territory, you have these escaped slaves running to Union lines and saying, OK, we're here, we're free. And the army's like, uh, what do we do with these people? Right. And so, you know, the Lincoln administration keeps trying to kick that can down the line. And there are a couple of instances in the first year of the war where, where generals, most notably uh, John C. Fremont, take it upon themselves to actually set slave policy. And Lincoln is aghast by this. Hmm. But very early on, Cameron says to, you know, at, at various points, the president he says, destruction of slavery has to be a war aim. Not because Cameron's an abolitionist, but because he recognizes that subduing the South is going to require destroying their capacity for making war. And the slaves are adding to that capacity. And so within a few weeks of the war starting, he begins advocating, um, you know, if not the abolition of slavery, then the enlistment of African Americans and the utilization of escaped slaves' labor on behalf of the Union's cause. This is an incredibly controversial thing and is ultimately the reason why he gets thrown out of the cabinet in January of 1862. Right, because as you mentioned, that he's only the Secretary of War for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you talk about in the book is that you think that the official reason why he was thrown out, or at least the public reason, or the, the reason that the administration made public, was different from like the actual reason. Yeah, so there, there, it's almost sort of like a shell game. You know, there are three basic reasons 
that have been bandied about for why Cameron ends up leaving the cabinet. Lincoln's reason, Lincoln claims that Cameron leaves the cabinet so that um, he can go become secretary or he can go become ambassador to Russia. He claims that, that Cameron, sometime in mid-1861, asked the president, oh, hey, can you send me abroad for an ambassadorial position? Cameron says in private and later in public, no, 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 no. I got fired and I got fired because I came out and advocated uh, the enlistment of African-Americans. And the president just wasn't willing to go there in late 1861. And then there's, you know, this argument that gets made by Cameron's political enemies and then by many historians since that argue that says, well, you know, Cameron was corrupt and Lincoln had finally had enough of his corruption. And in fact, you know, there's this great story that if you, you know, if you take a class in the Civil War, eventually you hear the story, which is Thaddeus Stevens meeting with the president. And, and the president says to Stevens, what do you think about uh, Simon Cameron? And Stevens was from Pennsylvania. He was a sometime rival of Cameron. And uh, Thaddeus Stevens is reputed to have said, well, I don't think Cameron would steal a red hot stove. And Lincoln, you know, Lincoln repeated this to Cameron and couldn't understand why Cameron was so bent out of shape. So Cameron goes to Stevens and says, you know, you said this thing. I'd really like it if you go back to the president and, and you know, take it back. So Stevens shows up at the White House and says, you know, Cameron came to see me. You know, I said that he wouldn't steal a red hot stove. I take that back. And, you know, of course, just delighted Lincoln even more. Right. Um, you know, I, I don't see the corruption that uh, a lot of historians have seen. And I think that his Cameron's historical reputation has been based upon a lot of what his enemies have said. And in researching those charges of uh, corruption, uh, bribery, of, you know, uh, 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 patronage politics, yeah, there was patronage politics, but it doesn't rise to a level that was different from what other people, Lincoln included, were doing. Cameron was not corrupt relative to... Chase or Seward or Lincoln or any of these guys. And I think that he's sort of become a victim of, you know, his reputation. You know, that Thaddeus Stevens story is just story is just too good not to tell. Right. It's not true. Right. And, and it seems almost too like, as you mentioned, like this is what, what was happening in Pennsylvania and it wasn't really unique to what was going on around the rest of the country. And perhaps at least in a his, with historians, there's a, notion of presentism that or at least an idealism that particularly with a figure like Lincoln we like to believe that mm -hmm. everything was on the up and up oh yeah and you know Lincoln was playing patronage politics as much you know much to a much greater degree than Cameron was if Cameron was really involved if, if Cameron's only goal was patronage he would have insisted on being postmaster general because right. the post office offered the richest uh, spoils of patronage of any of the cabinet positions that were then open to Lincoln, that were in Lincoln's gift. The War Department, comparatively speaking, offered very little in the way of patronage. Uh, now, of course, that's in normal times. The war creates all kinds of patronage opportunities. But, you know, Lincoln is rewarding his political supporters with governmental positions. It gets to the point where, you know, he basically has the War Department send over blank uh, commissions so he can just fill them in in the White House and give them to people. 
which is pretty questionable. Mary Todd Lincoln is giving away, you know, political offices and, and making political deals, which is one of the reasons why uh, congressmen in, in, in Washington dislike her so much. Chase and Seward are doing the same things at the at the Treasury and the State Departments. So, you know, Cameron is actually comparatively clean when it comes to these things. But of course, you know, I mean, you don't have a great Thaddeus Stevens quote about Chase. You don't have a great Thaddeus Stevens quote about Mary Todd Lincoln. Right. Um, now, but one of the interesting things, though, in having gone through the book is that Cameron also had this reputation of being a really nice person. Like mm-hmm. the, the title of the book amiable scoundrel like it sort of lends itself to that that on one hand people thought he was corrupt and this not great guy but on the other hand a lot of people liked him and that when he walked around capitol hill or when he walked you know around wherever he would you know shake hands seem like a genuine guy really command the room so how do these things like how does he get himself into this position where these people are attacking him this way yet People still talk about him as this really congenial guy. You know, it's funny. I it, I think of it almost as like, you know, sort of the Tip O'Neill-Ronald Reagan relationship. Mm. That there is a professional class of politicians that play this professional political game that involves saying and doing things between nine to five that are different from the things that you do over drinks you know, with each other, you know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House during Reagan's presidency, and they would oppose each other in a number of different ways. But personally, they were, you know, reasonably close. Right. You know, they were on very good terms. Um, and so I think that in an era of hyper partisanship, in an era where there's a lot of competition to sort of gain control of the emerging Republican political machine in Pennsylvania that you end up with, you know, people who are politically on different sides of issues, but, you know, might end up, you know, being personally friends. I mean, you know, at one point when he was um, in the Senate, uh, he was really good friends with uh, future president of the Confederacy, um, uh, Davis, Jefferson Davis good personal friends, even though they disagreed politically. Mm. And at one point, Davis was too sick to go vote on a bill. And Cameron, rather than see his friend go and vote on this bill, um, said, all right, look, you're going to vote yay, I'm going to vote nay. How about we both stay here? And, you know, the fact that you're not going is offset by the fact that I'm not going. Mm. You know, that was, you know, politically an opportunity for him to get what he wanted you know, by keeping his friend at home and then going to vote. But he decided friendship was more important than politics. And so, you know, the friendships that he had were deep and long lasting. You know, even I think probably even after the war, he still would have counted Jefferson Davis a friend, even though in his 10 months at the at the War Department, he did everything possible to end the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis's presidency. Um, You know, so I think that. I think that Cameron, much more so than other people, was able to separate what he did from nine to five from the people that he did it with. That's not to say he couldn't be vindictive. He could. But you you read these sources and even people that despised him. I mean, on a personal level, like Alexander McClure hated Cameron. 
but he still went out of his way to talk about how personable Cameron was and mm. genuinely personable, like had a magnetism about him that, you know, I think rivals someone like Bill Clinton. Where just is it just a generally magnetic, charismatic person? Right. And one of the things that people say about politicians, particularly politicians that you may disagree with policy wise, is that you should never meet them because they are so so magnetic and that mm-hmm. they come into a room in all eyes. They just the gravitational pull of a room goes right to them. Right. And if you meet them, odds are you will start to like them, at least on a personal level. Yeah. And I think that that's what it was with Cameron. And again, you know, it's one of those things where you're writing a bite. That was the thing where I really wished uh, that I could have gotten in a time machine and gone back and met him. Right. Because I really, I really think of all the things I've ever written about, this was the only project I've ever undertaken where I was like, you know what? I really wish I could get in a time machine and go back because I really feel like that piece is so hard to get a handle of. You know, in my previous books, I wrote about what happened at Homestead. And even though I wasn't there, I have a pretty good understanding of the events that took place and an understanding of why they happened. The bank war. I think I did a really good job capturing Jackson's personality, Biddle's personality. With Cameron, it was hard. And it Mm. forced me to sort of think outside the box about the type of sources that I wanted to use. And so it was really useful to see him through other people's eyes. These people who, even though they hated him, were forced to admit that he was this incredibly charismatic guy. Ironically enough, that made him a very effective politician, but did nothing for him when it came to being an administrator. And I think that's why he doesn't succeed as Secretary of War. And it sort of leads to the thought that perhaps a politician should not be Secretary of War, that you know, someone who is more familiar with the military and conducting a war would be more effective. Because one of the things that we haven't really talked about yet is there's all this stuff going on that leads to his appointment, that ends his appointment, none of which seems to have to do with the actual prosecution of the war. Right. And it would strike me that in an active war that that should really be the most important thing for the person who is in charge of the military. Well, and, you know, and that's part of the problem, too. I mean, one of the things about the Civil War is that in the early stages, the Union really takes a beating. And it takes a beating because even though it has, you know, the North has most of the trains, most of the money, most of the industrial produce, it has an almost insurmountable war objective, which is to, to invade, you know, the Confederacy's territory and force the Confederacy to abide by federal law. And really, as long as the Confederacy refuses to do that, the Confederacy's winning. Right. And so, in a lot of ways, it demands of the North a really aggressive, protracted, and expensive strategy that can't be sort of set in motion on a dime. You know, it's. It, I was thinking about Donald Rumsfeld's phrase, shock and awe. Right. You know, uh, it, it doesn't work like that. It's not, you know, roll into Richmond and burn it to the ground and, and, and stick a, 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 the stars and stripes in the ground and say, okay, we've won, boys. No, 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 no. You've got to destroy the Confederacy's will to fight. And as long as they are still, if there are five guys in the field with guns, they're still winning. 
So, in a lot of ways, I think that Cameron was the victim of being the first guy in the field. You know, had Cameron been able to keep his position longer, I think he would have been credited with much more of the Union's success. Because the Union really begins picking up steam as we get into 1862 and 1863. You know, it's it's in the summer of 1863 that we have two really important victories for uh, the, the American, the, the Federal's uh, war effort. And I think had Cameron been in office, those things would have still happened. I don't think that, you know, Edwin Stanton was some great military genius and, and you know, Cameron was a rube who couldn't handle the job. Mm-hmm. I think Cameron just happened to be there at the very beginning when all of these kinks had to be ironed out. And in addition, he had to answer this incredibly explosive issue about what are we going to do with these African-Americans? And the Lincoln administration just was not willing to go there. Right. Um, in a lot of ways, I think Cameron was very farsighted about the length of the war, the scope of the war, and what was going to need to happen for the Union to win the war. And I think that that vision put him out of step with the Lincoln administration in 1861 and the early part of 1862. So I don't want to, you know, if any, if, if, if anyone takes anything away from the book, I'd like them to take away that Cameron was in no way as corrupt or as incompetent as historians have traditionally depicted him. Right. Well, then I guess that leads to the question of then why wouldn't the Lincoln administration just say, you know what, we're trying to prosecute this war. It's early on. We're not doing well. We're replacing the secretary of war. Why engage in the whole scandalous backdrop of having him removed the way he was removed? Why not just say, you know what, we're not, you know, it's not working the way we want it to work. Well, I think that in part, uh, Cameron brings that on himself. Oh, okay. Cameron brings him on that, brings that on himself beginning in October of 1861 by making a series of public appearances that by either explicitly or implicitly endorse the idea of African Americans joining the army. And, you know, he starts saying these things or he's standing next to people who are saying these things. Um, really in October and then in November. And then in early December, he promulgates his annual report. And in his annual report, he says, we should do this. Hmm. And Lincoln just, you know, reads this and says, no, 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 we cannot do this. It'll cost us the border states. It'll cost us votes in the north. We cannot do this. Um, but unfortunately for Lincoln, Cameron, as was the practice, had sent his annual report out to the newspapers to be published. Right. And so, you know, the, sec- the, the postmaster general is trying to get these, these, these copies of the re- reports back. But of course, you know, that only encourages, you know, the newspapers to publish them. And so what, what, what ends up happening is the initial version of the report gets published. Abolitionists are elated. Um, you know, and then it becomes clear that the Lincoln administration has tried to call that back in. And so abolitionists go from elation to uh, uh, anger at the Lincoln administration, which they see as not moving fast enough on the issue of slavery anyway. And it, it puts Lincoln in a really bad political situation. You add to that the fact that, you know, Republicans at the national level are kind of scrambling for control over of this Republican Party. And there's this sort of 
tug of war taking place between the White House on the one hand and Congress on the other over who's going to actually be in control of the union war effort. And, you know, Cameron becomes sort of the sacrificial lamb. You know, getting rid of Cameron gives the Lincoln administration an opportunity to reboot its relationship with the abolitionists, with Congress, with, you know, the debate over, you know, the various factions that are trying to control the Republican Party. Um, it doesn't work out the way that Lincoln hopes it will. But, you know, I think getting rid Cameron becomes the face of the war. And so once he gets up and says, we should enlist African-Americans, you know, his time is limited. And that's why the Lincoln administration does it the way that it does. But it, Lincoln still comes to Cameron's de defense, albeit tepidly, when Congress censures Cameron. Okay, so and th so moving forward, then you know you mentioned he goes to Russia, he comes back and sits as a senator again. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like for him to go back to Washington after all of this takes place? Well, it's funny because Cameron's last. Cameron's decade in the Senate from 1867 to 1877 is really the moment where he solidifies his control over Pennsylvania's Republican Party and becomes the dominant Republican in Pennsylvania. And, you know, as a result, you know, is able to, in the Senate, use federal patronage, federal contracts, federal, you know, all of the federal government's largesse to essentially cement that control. Um, he eventually becomes chairman of the committee on the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations, which is the most prestigious committee chairmanship in in the Senate. Um, and he's a player. He is a huge, huge player in the Grant administration. Uh, Grant comes to him repeatedly as a friendly face in the Senate. He takes political advice from Cameron. Um, you know, their relationship is not perfect. There are moments where there is some tension between Grant and Cameron, but Cameron's political power is unquestioned and unquestionable mm. um, between 1867 and 1877. Um, he is a national figure um, on an incredibly important committee with the president's ear. So the one thing that I really took away from the, the book and going through was this idea that Cameron, while he had this really strong affiliation with Pennsylvania and wanted to do what was best for Pennsylvania. You argue that he was really doing what he felt was best for the country the whole time. Like he, he never acted selfishly. He never acted in a way that was this corrupt nature that, that he had been accused with. And one of the things that occurred to me, cause I've, I've talked about this in my own stuff with broadcasting that there are two different camps and they are each pursuing what they truly believe to be the most effective means to help the country. And I've written that before. And one of the things that I always am worried about whenever I write it is, am I simply providing a justification or a rationalization for a plan that perhaps is being presented as, oh, we believe this is best for the country, but in reality, there's a lot of selfish, selfish interest there. And I'm wondering about Cameron in that way. You know, it's easy to present yourself as doing what you believe is best for the country. But, you know, he comes through the ranks as a, a newspaper man. And, and obviously there are 
strong beliefs that he has, and he benefits personally a great deal from his political life. So is it really a matter that he is doing truly what he believes is best for both Pennsylvania and the country all the time? Or are there moments where you look at what he does and say, well, perhaps there is more of a personal motivation to it? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, there's a statement in D.C., you know, they say, you know, where you stand is where you sit. Right. Meaning that, you know, your perspective has a lot to do with the situation, you know, where you are in the government. You know, the, the, the State Department tends to favor diplomacy. The, you know, Pentagon tends to favor blowing shit up. Right. Uh, you know, so, yeah, you know, I, absolutely. I mean, Cameron is not a saint by right. any yeah, yeah. imagination. And there I mean, is, the word scoundrels in the title for a reason. Oh, yeah, totally, yeah. totally, totally, totally. And, you know, there there is definitely a level where, you know, Cameron would think that that what was good for Pennsylvania was good for Simon Cameron. What was good for Simon Cameron was good for Pennsylvania. And what was good for Pennsylvania was good for the United States. What was good for the United States was good for Pennsylvania. Absolutely. However, you you know, there is definitely a convergence of interest. And I actually think Cameron was probably self-aware enough to know that I think if you could get enough champagne in him, he would admit that, right. you know, he's not an ideologue and he's nobody's fool when you get right down to it. That all being said, I think one of the things about historians is that, you know, we live in a very, we live particularly in this country in a very, in the shadow of a political battle that was won 150, 140 years ago, and that was the fight over civil service reform. Cameron came of age where, in the Jacksonian era, where, you know, to the victor go the spoils, and the idea that anyone is, is qualified for any of these positions, we're going to sweep out the other political party, we're going to bring in our partisans as a reward for supporting us. That's all gotten a bad name you know, in light of the civil service reform in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, you know, that's sort of become the orthodoxy. We should have nonpartisan government administered by technocratic experts, blah, 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 blah. And one of the things that I want to suggest about that is, while I personally think that that's probably a good thing, I also recognize that my perspective is heavily shaped by the fact that that's the environment in which I was born. Right. That, you know, Cameron has a critique of that and ends up retiring from the Senate when it becomes clear that the Jacksonian era is coming to an end and the era of civil service reform can't be suppressed. And I think that we should give that argument its due. Not that he was making that argument in a totally selfless or disinterested frame of mind. He wasn't. But the Jacksonian spoils system is what made possible Cameron's rise from abject poverty to national influence. And not for nothing, it's what made possible Lincoln's rise from abject poverty to political influence. It's a system that gave us, you know, many important political figures and really structured our political system in the 19th century. And I think that we should be a little bit more willing to sort of engage with it on its own terms. Not that we shouldn't make, you know, judgments about it, mm -hmm. but I also think that we need to move beyond sort of the thumbnail stereotype, you know, 
soundbite understanding of that and engage with it in its own terms. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And and I I, I agree that it's it's I think probably the hardest thing to do, particularly when you're talking about political things. And oh, yeah. right, I mean it's it's one thing you can have this nice separation when you're talking about something that you know most people don't really care about, but the the extent to which Lincoln and the Civil War are still used by a lot of people uh, in, in contemporary politics and contemporary discourse, it makes that that much harder to oh, yeah. engage in a, a serious, in-depth, nuanced discussion about it. Well, it's, it's, it's a tendency to find good guys and bad guys. It's a desire for there to be a very simple narrative where, you know, the good guys wear white hats, the black guy, the bad guys wear black hats. And, you know, it's super easy to tell, you know, who's who. And if anything, I hope Cameron's story sort of complicates that, you know, because here is a guy who was, you know, probably the most, you know, one of the most successful spoilsmen of his age, who nonetheless was a progressive on issues of race and a progressive on issues of slavery, a progressive on issues of, you know, uh, um, the federal government's use of political power. And, you know, it, he's both amiable and a scoundrel. And I, I hope that, that people don't approach the book in those sort of binary terms, but sort of accept him on his own terms. And hopefully, and as you mentioned, the, the title, I think, beautifully situates you for what you're going to get in the book. And just like the bank war, too, I have to compliment you on the title, or well, the, the title, but also the, uh, the cover. <laughs> um, it's another really good cover. Uh, you have the the portrait of Cameron at the top, and then you have Lincoln's cabinet underneath. Well, it's funny you mention that. Um, actually, the the University of Nebraska put that together with with very little input from me. And uh, the the publicist, he's a guy by the name of Martin Beanie, uh, will be very happy to hear that you like the cover. So if you happen to uh, tweet him, if you're listening to this podcast. And you want to do a good deed for the day? Tweet Martin Beanie and tell him you love the cover of the book because he will be very. I, he sweated quite a bit about that, so I'm, I'm glad to hear it's the people are appreciating it. Yeah, I, I, I really like the title and, and or the title and the, the cover. Uh, I, I think they work well together. And again, the book is Amiable Scoundrel Simon Cameron Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War, and that is Paul Cahan. And you can find him on Twitter at Paul underscore Cahan, Cahan spelled K-A-H-A-N, and also paulcahan.com. And one thing that you're going to want to do is go either to his Twitter or to the website and find out where he's doing a lot of other appearances and a lot of other press to talk about this book, because certainly we did not get into everything that is in this book today. So there will be a lot of other things that you can hear Paul talk about elsewhere, uh, and other media, and you can also, frankly, just buy the book too, which I totally support. There is a very juicy sex scandal for those of you that are uh, into that. So yes, I, I, I didn't, I didn't, we, I didn't want to get into that too deeply. But <laughs> if you need another reason to buy the book, an eighty-year-old guy in a sex scandal is a pretty good. <laughs> like salacious reason to buy a book right yeah yeah just you know just you know if you're gonna buy it you know it's chapter 10 um you know <laughs> so you can get that through the through his website through amazon and, and and we would recommend it so paul thanks again so much for coming back thank you for having me if you have any questions or comments for the podcast history slam at gmail.com twitter at dr shawnee fever and if you're out 
and you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.